Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Cinematic Universe, a podcast that's all about comic book movies, brought to you by FilmDivider.com. I'm Joe Cunningham, and joining me to help make sense of the comics behind the movies are... James Hunt and Caroline Cedar. So, as you may have noticed, Seb is still away, but we're delighted to have Caroline here with us this week. Um, and eagle-eared listeners, if that is a thing, uh, may remember her name because we actually recommended a really great piece of Caroline's back on our Agent Carter episode. And we got to know her a little bit online since, uh, as she keeps writing great pieces that I keep reading. And so we asked Caroline if she wanted to come onto the podcast, and she said yes, which is great. Um, so Caroline, do you want to tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and what we'll be discussing on today's show? Absolutely. We're first of all, thank you for those compliments. And also, I have to say, I'm excited to be uh, the first American presence, at least that I know of, on Cinematic Universe. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> so I am a pop culture writer um, at the AV Club, amongst other places. And for this episode, I suggested that we take a uh, a journey back to one of my favorite childhood movies, 1990s Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And I, for one, am very excited to discuss it with you guys. <laughs> Um, I I can't tell you, I was quite excited before I watched it, and then I watched it, and I was like, oh man, this is going to be so much more enjoyable to talk about than I even thought it might have been. Yeah, I had basically the same experience. I was like, oh, it'll be fun, but I didn't think, oh, it's going to be this much fun. Who knew? Who knew there was was this much subtext to the Ninja Turtles? (laughs) (laughs) But yes, this week we will be discussing Steve Barron's 1990 film, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. But also, as usual, we'll be discussing the latest comic book movie and TV news. But before any of that, I'm going to ask James to explain a comics concept that, as movie fans, Caroline and I just don't understand. James, you know what's coming. (sighs) Explain Secret Wars. Uh, Okay, what I'm going to explain is what's supposed to be in the comics, as opposed to what's actually in the comics. But for for total, like, comic dum-dums, and I kind of include myself here. So this is, this is a, it's a summer crossover event in the Marvel comics that is, that is supposedly, like, the biggest crossover they've ever had. Is that fair? Yeah. Basically, it's their attempt to sort of re not reboot continuity, but just set a new you know post and say if you want to start reading, you can start reading after Secret Wars. So, like what see- DC did with the New Fifty Two. Yeah, it's basically the Marvel version of that. And so, what they've done is they've destroyed their entire multiverse except for one planet called Battle World, which is about fifty different alternate universes all patchworked together into a, into a single planet. 
Amazing. Sounds pretty straightforward so far. Yeah, except <laughs> when you're reading the comics, it's very hard to tell. Like, there are multiple versions of Manhattan. So some of the books don't tell you which version of Manhattan they're set in. You don't know if the characters are ones from a reality you're familiar with or whether they're completely new. The ones who are definitely from the mainstream Marvel Universe don't remember the mainstream Marvel Universe. And also, they've been sort of mashed together with the Ultimate Universe. And so there's no no separation between the Ultimate and regular Marvel Universes in Battleworld. It is seriously one of the most confusing crossovers I've ever read. And so what's the purpose of it? What's going to happen once you get to the end, do you think? I think they'll just restore the multiverse and then there'll be a load of new books that have no sort of explicit ties to the past and there'll just be a bunch of sort of slightly new uh story premises like there's a really good one of the good books to come out is called a force which is just a sort of uh it's all the female avengers characters in a team living on an island and that's really good and i can see when they get to the end of secret wars they'll bring that concept over and you know you'll be able to pick that up as an entirely new book and that's great but as a story it's just there are too many people doing slightly different takes on what should be a fairly you know it's a difficult concept in the first place but but everyone seems to have understood it slightly differently and that's making it all confusing caroline do you read many comics does, I, does any of that make sense to you about 10 percent of that makes sense to me i think i read even <laughs> even i don't really read comics like at at all i've maybe picked up one or two to look at but is is mm. this so secret war is just one line of comics it's not like there's captain america secret wars and iron man secret wars and whatever it's just one book what they do is they have the event series which is where the main narrative is taking place Mm -hmm. and then every other marvel book is taking place in the world of secret wars oh okay so there's there's no getting away from it so like i'm reading hawkeye now so how does that work for like comics like hawkeye or miss marvel or stuff like that that kind of it seems like the popularity of those books has been more predicated on like good content in that book alone and that you don't have to be a fan of everything yeah how it works is that it's a giant steamroller sort of coming through the book (laughs) and everyone does their best to to try and say uh we're just going to do the stories we were going to do and we'll maybe mention the fact that we're in a different universe at the moment honestly it doesn't really work and that's kind of the problem okay so um well maybe we can have a um Maybe we can have an update once Secret Wars is over and you can you can tell us <laughs> yeah, what the status is. If I'm still is. reading by that point. Okay, well, uh, to avoid making the whole podcast about that, I think it'd be a good good idea to move on to our new segment now. And it's it's pretty quiet in the old superhero movie news world at the moment. Um, there's a couple of things. But what I thought I'd do, given that we're doing Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles today, I thought we'd go a little bit off the beaten track with our news and kind of do a roundup of a couple of... A couple of movies that we haven't actually mentioned in the superhero news segments had they been going along, even though they are kind of comic book properties. So we'll start off, in fact, we'll start off with Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, which is to acknowledge that last year a movie came out called Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, which was from Michael Bay's Platinum Dunes, um, starred Will Arnett and Megan Fox and um, a bunch of green screen. And they're making a sequel. And that sequel has kind of already added cast members like... Um, Laura Linney has joined it. Judith Hogue, who plays um, who plays April O'Neil in the 1990 movie we're about to talk about, has got a cameo role. Stephen Amell has joined the cast as Casey Jones. Um, there's a rumour that Krang might be in it. Bebop and Rock- Rocksteady have been added to the lineup. What are you guys thinking about Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2? <laughs> Caroline, have you watched the last one? Are you? Uh, are you? I, I did. I watched it specifically 
uh, for this podcast just so I had something to compare it to. So I have to say, I went in with my expectations as low as they could possibly be, and I would recommend (laughs) anyone who hasn't seen it watch it in that manner because I'm a little embarrassed to say that I kind of enjoyed it. It was not nearly as bad as I thought it was going to be. I won't go as far as to say it was good, but I don't (laughs) think it was a total train wreck as I expected it to be. And in fact, I kind of really enjoyed the turtles themselves. And I think if we can get more... I didn't enjoy their like the way they looked, but I enjoyed their like yeah. personalities actually did kind of make me laugh. So I feel like if they can get a little more <laughs> character focused on the turtles, uh, and maybe a little bit less like action sequence focused, and maybe a little bit less villain focused, that I have some hope for Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles too. Not a lot of hope, but a little bit of hope. And James, from that kind of list of things that I said about the movie, is there anything in there that particularly gets you excited? Is it is it Bebop and Rob's Rocksteady? Yes, it is, and you know this. You know this because I said about I was looking forward to them being in the comics. But yeah, I like I remember when when the first trilogy came out, it wasn't enough like the cartoons for me. And one of the things I really wanted to see was Bebop and Rocksteady because I just thought they were hilarious. Like the, just the idea of a giant dumb sort of rhino and warthog mutants who can't do anything right. Yeah. <laughs> At the time, like I honestly have no idea where there'll be any good in the the Michael Bay films because I haven't seen them. But if I was making a wish list, they'd be on it. So for old time's sake, I'm looking forward to that. How does Krang fit onto that wish list? Do we all remember Krang, by the way? No memory of him. I was shocked because I did watch the cartoon, but I must have just blocked him out or something. (laughs) Krang used to creep me out like nothing else on the cartoons. So he's like this weird little pink squishy brain who sits in kind of like is it is it a robot body or is it an actual body that he lives in james uh i think it's a robot it's a robot with some limited agency of its own maybe <laughs> are you excited about crown would you like the crown rumor to be correct yeah why not i mean you might as well just put everything in there at this point do you guys watch Arrow? And if so, do you have an opinion on the oh. Stephen Amell guy? Yeah, so I'm I'm not completely up to date on Arrow, but Stephen Amell is he he's like he's a good looking guy, he's good at action, and he handles all that side of it well. But given that he's playing like quite a straight faced, kind of moody hero, he handles his moments of comedy remarkably well. Hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm I'm quite looking forward to seeing him let loose a little bit as Casey Jones. I think I think that's <laughs> some really really smart casting. And uh, yeah, I mean it, he's ridiculously good looking. Megan Fox is ridiculously good looking. They they could probably be a ridiculously good looking couple on screen. I haven't watched Errol, and I didn't have a strong opinion of him. He always seemed a little bit boring to me. But I'm glad to hear that he has a little bit more layers that hopefully he can bring. Because I really like Casey Jones as a character. He does a good Twitter feed, in fact. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, and I've interviewed him once, and he's very—he's got a like in person has a pretty dry sense of humor, and was just openly making fun of me in the interview, which. Uh, <laughs> I'm, yeah, I'm usually on board with. <laughs> it was probably because I was asking him questions about whether the Arrow universe was going to spin out into anything else a week before they announced The Flash. <laughs> a week before. And he was sat there going, well, I don't know, maybe something could happen. I oh, know the, the DC guys are on board of our show. Uh, could have given me the scoop of a lifetime. <laughs> um, let's move on now to um, another movie. Um, so this is The Crow. Um, another movie based on comic books. Um, and The Crow is a long gestating remake of the Brandon Lee film, uh, which then became a series of films, um, four I think there were in the end, um, which after going through about four or five directors and four or five lead, lead actors is now 
happening. Jack Houston of Boardwalk Empire is playing the lead role. Uh, and this week, Deadline have reported that Andrea Riseborough is in talks to join as the main villain. And if I'm reading this correct, she will be playing Top Dollar, who in the original movie was a guy. So they are gender swapping the villain, um, potentially. Um, do you do you guys have any associations with The Crow or feel think anything about this? Because I've never seen a Crow movie ever. Yeah, I'm far from a, a crow expert either, but I did do some research just so that I could contribute to this conversation. It's very dark material because it's seen because I had no idea about the story, and it's sort of about a couple who are murdered, and the woman is is the girlfriend or the fiance is like brutally raped, and then the the guy ends up sort of coming back from the dead in order to avenge you know her and like take revenge on everyone that that did this to her, the the criminals, and I think sort of brutally murder them. So it's like really, really dark material, which makes yeah. me mm-hmm. wonder um, if this is sort of the atmosphere that audiences are interested in seeing this kind of thing. Uh, and I also wonder if it's going to be like a, a really dark rated R movie or if they're going to try to in some way lighten it up. That I'm really curious about. Um, but I also really like Andrea Riseborough as an actress, and I think so. I'm, I'm excited to see her. And I also do really like the concept of changing this villain um, from a man to a woman, particularly yeah. because you're dealing with themes of like you know women being raped or subjected to crime or whatever. I think it's smart to have more than just the image of that woman, dead woman off to the side, and then a guy doing something. In some way, involving a woman in the story seems like that could could just be helpful all around. Yeah, yeah I, 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 I like the casting generally. I like Jack Houston a lot from Boardwalk Empire. Um, uh, I mean, I think this film, if it, like it had James McAvoy and Bradley Cooper and people like that attached mm. in the past, or at least heavily rumoured. And Jack Houston seems like a, I, I think probably a nice like middle ground in that a rising star, but someone who can properly act. And um, if you've seen Boardwalk Empire, he can definitely emote with uh, very little in that he only gets half a face to emote with in Boardwalk Empire. Mm. He's the guy who has the like half a mask over his face. Um <laughs> So he's brilliant, and yeah, you're right, Caroline. Andrea Andrea Riseborough is uh, is uh, a pretty great actress, and I think almost like she weirdly, I feel like her career stalled a little bit in the last year or two, mm-hmm. or at least in that it felt like she was turning up in everything in really interesting roles, and that slowed down a bit. So yeah, I uh, concur with everything you said, and um, we're probably going to have to do the Crow on the podcast at one point, <laughs> um, the original Crow, anyway. Yeah. Be good. It'd be just a good excuse to see it, if anything else. <laughs> I watched the trailer, and it looks like the most 90s film that has ever been created. And that's another <laughs> question I have about how well it will transfer to sort of a modern update, because it just, I mean, it just screamed the 90s in every way possible. Let's move on now to our final piece of news. And this, uh, I, I guess we can kind of use it as news again, because the the news is that the pilot for Supergirl has leaked online. So if you want to be very illegal and go onto torrenting websites and watch Supergirl, you can watch that now. Which, as far as CBS is concerned, could either be a very good thing or a very bad thing, depending on, I guess, how it's received. You know, conspiracy theorists might say, well, the the kind of online reaction was split to this. Maybe CBS are actually really confident and just want to throw it out into the world and go, hey, look, it's good. Let's get some positive buzz building up for this. Or it could get hammered and the ratings will be terrible for the pilot and it'll be pulled very quickly. But that's that's kind of neither here nor there. I want to use this as an excuse to... Um, Caroline, I'll ask you first. What did you think of the Supergirl trailer? Because me and James have both written about it and were kind of defensive of the criticism that it got and 
really quite liked it. Are you on the are you on the same side of the fence, or do you not like Supergirl? I am on exactly the same side of the fence. I yes. adored this trailer. <laughs> I was I I appreciate that there is are very limited female characters and that people take them very seriously and are kind of you know looking out to make sure that they're well represented. So I, I do appreciate that people are are checking her out in that way. But I have to say, I thought that this was. Uh, you know, a lot of people are slamming it for sort of relying on rom-com tropes, but I actually think it's, you know, again, I haven't seen the, the full pilot myself, but I got mm. the sense it was it was more subversive and more smart with the material and that it was sort of in on the joke of, oh, we present her as a romantic, you know, a rom-com lead, and then instead of we get to the point where she finds the man, we get to the point where she, you know, develops her superpowers. So yeah. I thought that that was, <laughs> was in fact, pretty smart. Um, and the other thing I really like about it is, I think a lot of people feel, oh, we've seen this sort of female character before, the sort of bubbly, um, neurotic woman. But the thing is, we haven't really seen a female superhero who's like that. And if you look at our current crop of superheroes, it's Gamora and Mystique and Black Widow. And all three of them are emotionally cold assassins. So (laughs) if we are looking for a trope of female characters, I would actually say that's the case. And I don't think we've had a super feminine bubbly superhero since probably like the Fantastic Four, the original Fantastic Four, where it was Jessica Alba. Like that's kind of the last super feminine (laughs) superhero that I can think of. So um, on the one hand, I understand why people think it looks familiar, but I actually think in this context, it's going to be sort of revolutionary. It's funny, is it? There's that moment in the trailer where she actually says, no, look, I want want to be a superhero. I don't want to walk away from this, which is the opposite of that superhero trope of like, oh, this is such a Mm -hmm. burden. This is a... This is a, a, a really hard thing that I'm having to cope with. She's just like, no, fuck it. I want to be a superhero. <laughs> it's amazing. I get to be like my cousin. This is great. Um, James, you you wrote about this as well. Is there anything you wanted to add? It, what excites me about this is that it seems to be doing the superhero concept in a relatively straightforward way. Like the the thing it reminds me most of is probably Buffy in that it's it's got a superheroic character who is actually living a secret identity in a sort of meaningful way. Like mm. again, I don't know how they're going to spin it out when they actually get to the series, but as someone who's a fan of the genre, it excites me to see a kind of straightforward, unashamed take on it. This to me looks like a, a concept that has fallen out of fashion being done in a, a straightforward and lighthearted way, and I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, okay, great. So we're all on the Supergirl bandwagon. <laughs> oh God, I, ho- I really hope after this, oh, just just after we finish recording, all the reactions to the pilot will start coming out online. It's like, oh no, it's bad. It's bad. It's really <laughs> no, bad. I already read one. I think io9 published one that said it was good, so... <laughs> If your conspiracy or conspiracy theory is true, then then uh, CBS has chosen wisely. I, ge- I genuinely think that could be a thing, you know. Like, uh, like <laughs> there, there are sometimes like the Game of Thrones leak. I don't think that would that. There's no way that could be intentional. But I mean, the networks like to put out their pilots during the summer sometimes anyway. But this mm-hmm. is just this is very early. And if it is good, then it would make sense. Okay, well, but I think that brings us to the end of our uh, comic book movie news segment. We'll move on now to our spoiler-filled discussion of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. But before we dive in, let's listen to the original trailer for the movie. Our family grows. The city itself will be our playground to use as we please. Rewarding ourselves and punishing our enemies. We've been looking for you, Miss O'Neill. There is a new enemy. Freaks of nature. Together, we will punish these 
Richard. What the heck was that? Looked like sort of a big title in a trench coat. Okay, so that was the trailer for 1990s Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I thought we'd kick off this discussion by uh, talking about what our kind of individual relationships were with the Ninja Turtles. Because, James, I think you're... you're, So you're a little bit older than me, so by extension older than me and Caroline. So I I guess I was was like a year old when the first Ninja Turtles film came out. So I don't... Don't say that. Do you know what I worked out the other day? Um, our Batman episode. Bat- the Batman movie came out, like, the week I was born in the UK. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> uh, so this, uh, maybe, maybe I, I will always have an affinity for that one. <laughs> but, yeah, so I, I was, like, a year old. So I, I, I'm not old enough to remember this film coming out. But I'm old enough to remember, as a kid, kind of just soaking up the cartoons every time they were on the TV. I had Ninja Turtles toys... I, I watch these movies. I like. I, I have a me- I have a memory of watching this film, um, but probably not until I was like five or six when it was on TV and stuff. But basically, what I'm saying is, I loved the turtles as a kid, and even like as an adult, I bought a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles costume for a like fancy dress party when I was eighteen, <laughs> and um, I've got Ninja Turtles T-shirts and stuff like that pajamas <laughs> so like i've always been on board for the turtles and the ultimate thing they represent which is merchandise um but um how does that relate to you caroline did, did you were you a turtles fan growing up yeah my story is actually almost identical to yours i think we're the same age so i was i was uh, going at the same uh time frame that you were and i similarly but loved in a different country the, in a different the other country. side of an ocean yeah look at that <laughs> parallel lives um, I did love the TV show, although I have so few memories of it now, other than the fact that I felt like every episode involved a plot line in which they almost filmed the turtles, but then, oh, we left the lens cap on, or we <laughs> lost the tape, or our camera broke. That's my main memory of the TV show. Uh, but I similarly had all of the, the toys, and um, I love this, this movie was sort of my, my main way into the turtles was this film. I think even more so than the TV show. Cause going back and watching this, I was amazed that I pretty much remembered every single scene. There was, oh, wow. I haven't watched it since I was probably <laughs> like nine years old. And I, I could recall pretty much line for line what was going to happen. What about you, James? What is it? So you're, so as we've already established, you're an old, old man. <laughs> um, <laughs> How, what was your experience with the Turtles when you were younger? Yeah, if you can so remember have, back that far. I'd have been about seven or eight when the first Turtles movie came out. Ancient. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, I was like prime prime audience for it. Like, If anyone was being targeted by this film, it was me. And did uh, you know the Turtles before that then? 
Yes, I watched and loved the cartoons as a child. Uh, even though, when you look back at it, those cartoons actually don't hold up very well. Like they're you shut they're your mouth. really hokey. But <laughs> at the same time, when you're a kid, you don't notice that. So you know, I was I was deep into it. And one of the one of the things I didn't like about this film at the time was that it wasn't enough like the cartoons. Mm. Uh, although now I think that's probably a good thing. Although it's interesting, isn't it? Because I was looking into the history of the Ninja Turtles to kind of, uh, as research this podcast, and I'm actually going to do something that normally I leave to you and Seb, James, uh, which is to make <laughs> a recommendation to our listeners. On Netflix, and this is certainly the case on UK Netflix, there is a documentary called Turtle Power... The Definitive History of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, which if you want to do any follow-up watching after this podcast, that is definitely where you should go, which is basically a, a definitive history of the turtles from their inception on in comics up until the first film, basically, um, and how that all went down. And uh, the weird, the kind of weird journey it had to the screen, because... It started off as this comic book, which, James, I'm sure you can tell us more about the actual comic origins. Mm -hmm. But then, even before it was a TV show, it was sold to a toy company, and they came up with a toy line. And then they kind of worked a small number of cartoon episodes to put out to promote this toy line. Except the cartoons ended up being insanely popular, and the toy line ended up being insanely popular. And... Both of them just took off no end. Everything about the Turtles is kind of... Everything at every stage seemed like a risk, but everything also seemed like just chasing money. Like, unashamedly, the Turtles, after they left the comic book page, were around to make money. Um, does that does that chime with what you know about it, James? Yeah, I mean, basically, the, the sort of... The, the origins of the Turtles are really bizarre in that they start off as a self-published thing which was literally drawn in uh, Eastman and Led's kitchen and they printed it using money from a tax rebate yeah. <laughs> and it turned into this multi-million dollar franchise it's it's kind of the dream in a way like when you guested on a podcast recently and you asked me and Seb to recommend what we thought were the most important superhero movies yeah and we argued hard that you should include this on your list yeah, precisely because it's the sort of culmination of what two people can do drawing a comic yeah that was the digital drift podcast i should probably point out yeah yeah and it it occupies this 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 really bizarre point in cinema because i i seem to remember that the reason that you were saying it should be included and i'm gonna like horribly misquote you here but was that like <laughs> if a kind of slightly terrible parody of daredevil and a various other range of comic book characters can be a global success than, than any comic book can. And that it kind of paves the way for stuff like, I don't know, I guess probably like in the shorter term, stuff like Blade, and in the longer term, stuff like 300 and Sin City. and I would, uh, and I would say, like, like, the biggest thing that Turtles is a forerunner to is probably The Walking Dead. Because The Walking mm. Dead takes the black and white comic format and spins it out into a multimedia franchise. And I don't think without comics like Turtles, you'll have got to The Walking Dead. Because it just, it wouldn't have been attractive for creators to come and do their own their own stuff and then try and translate it in, in that way. Like, Turtles showed it was possible and everything afterwards kind of followed in that footsteps. Yeah. And those comic book parody origins. So, as far as I can tell... The Teenage Mutant is kind of like a New Mutants riff. The Ninja is basically everything Frank Miller. So it's... Daredevil and Ronin. 
and then the turtles bit is is kind of playing on what Cerberus did. Is it Cerberus? Yes, Dave Sims Cerberus, which was again, it was a re- it was a popular uh, self published comic, which was about an anthropomorphic aardvark who was also a barbarian. <laughs> Although the scope of it changes dramatically, and I won't yeah. try and summarise the whole thing, but so so it's strange. It's kind of this parody of a number of comic book things, and I thought, Caroline, I mean, watching it now, watching it back then, w- you know, would would you have been able to tell? Could you tell now, for instance, that there was Daredevil influence on this? Uh, no, I think until you guys had brought this up, uh, in, until you guys had, I guess I could, I can see definitely that it's using these tropes that something like Daredevil is going to use as well, but I never would have framed it or phrased it as being a parody of those things. And that was actually really interesting for me to see you guys bring up when we were, when we were planning for this. Cause I think it's played, especially in the movie, I think it's played very straight and yes, it's weird, mm. but I don't think that this is any weirder than something like Ant-Man. Like, when I watch that trailer, I also think, this is weird, <laughs> but it doesn't feel like it's yeah. making fun of it. Um, and it's some, it's distinct for me from something like Mystery Men, which is a movie that's very specifically trying to parody the tropes of superheroes, and I think intentionally doing so. So, yeah, it's interesting to me to hear that, that there's so much um, parodying maybe in the source material. Although I did learn that he's named Splinter because he's supposed to be a splinter of stick. And that's how they got yes. the, the name for that, which is pretty awesome. <laughs> and similarly, the Foot Clan. The Foot Clan are, are a play on the hand in Daredevil. Oh. Yeah, and in, in the comic, the mutagen that mutates them is actually the radioactive waste that uh, spilled on Daredevil. <laughs> like, there's a scene of it bouncing off a kid's face and going into the drain and then oh, really? mutating the turtles. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. That is so cool. <laughs> But that is interesting because really in this film, in this 1990 film, you really couldn't tell. Like, it is this crazy out there concept. But I think especially watching it in 2015 as well, like, we're so used to the turtles. Like, Mm -hmm. for 25 years now, they've become ubiquitous that you kind of don't bat an eyelid of the fact that they're teenage (laughs) mutant ninja turtles. But it's interesting. I think even back then, it probably lost all that parody element between the comic and the screen because... Essentially, as far as I'm aware, James, the cartoon bears little resemblance in terms of tone and in terms of the actual characters, other than that there are four turtles and a rat yeah, to the, the comics. It completely changed it to pitch it to a different audience. Yeah, the cartoon is like if someone did... You know when The Simpsons did their Watchmen Kids parody? Yes. Like, it's... The cartoon is basically like that. It's sort of, it's so... I don't want to use the word bastardization because it's, you know, the, it's good at what it does. But at the same time, it's it's like a ground-up reimagining, say, of the of the very basic concept. So I, I guess one of, the, one of the questions I was wondering when I was watching this was, who do you think this film is for? I do think it's, it's a younger audience than you get for... Like, I think the current line of of superhero films like the Marvel films and the DC films. I do think that those Mm. are aimed, they're really aimed at an adult audience. Like they're very aware that they have to be appropriate for a younger audience, but I do think that those are aimed a little older. And I think that this, I would maybe compare it almost to like one of those uh, animated films that Disney made in the nineties, like little mermaid or Aladdin or beauty and the beast where they're, they're aimed at children, but it's not something that a parent has to suffer through. Like this is, (laughs) totally enjoyable for an adult to watch but i don't think it's quite as deep as it would be if it was actually aimed at adults i do think it's it's interesting that this comes from an era when children's films were aimed at children and didn't 
actually have that many concessions to adults. Like, it's not... It doesn't do that sort of Pixar thing of jokes that children won't necessarily understand that adults will. Like, there there are some pop culture references which are way out there, but... So you get Michelangelo doing Rocky and James Cagney impressions? <laughs> <laughs> like, there was probably a bunch of people in their 20s watching this film at the time going, who's Jimmy Cagney? <laughs> uh, <laughs> Which also, how does um, Michelangelo know about him? Like, what kind of, He's like a traditional teenager in every way but his film taste. <laughs> I mean, they only have the videos that people flush down the toilet, so... Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's a good point. That's a good point. But yeah, and I think we're probably in quite a good place to judge that now, then, aren't we? Because, like, we're all we're all looking back at this as people who kind of liked this movie at the time, uh, or, you know, liked it as kids. And then, I mean, watching it back as an adult, do you think it's still... Is it still enjoyable? Is it funny? Do the pop culture references date it? Or is it still a good film to watch? Yes, I think that this film holds up remarkably well. And that was my biggest fear going in because I loved it so much as a kid that this would just totally fall apart on rewatch. And and to be fair, I think I'm very much colored by like my nostalgia glasses here. So I'm not as objective as I would be if I was just watching this for the first time. But I do think that it that it really does hold up. There's like a fluidity to the filmmaking. They strike just the right balance between having a lot of fun and embracing the cheesiness, but also they they don't do that thing where they're self-aware, like, this is dumb. Everyone kind of really commits to what they're doing, and that allows them (laughs) Mm -hmm. to sort of have these emotional There's moments. one joke when Raphael comes out of the cinema and he's been watching Critters and he goes, <laughs> oh, where did they come up with this stuff? Yeah, and if the whole <laughs> film was that, that would be awful. But the fact that it, we just get one or two moments, I actually think is is to the film's credit. Like, I think that they strike a really, really tricky balance of, of how to do that. And yeah, it really worked for me on this rewatch. And it's interesting that we get kind of, the movie starts on April, but it's like two or three minutes on April pre-titles. Then we join the Turtles, and they're the protagonists of the movie. Like, the the 2014 remake, April is the protagonist, and the Turtles are kind of the people that join her along for the journey. This film has the confidence to go, no, our main characters are the Turtles, and we're going to spend, like, 95% of the film just with them. For me, the one reason why this works is the Jim Henson suits. Yeah. That this was the last movie that Jim Henson worked on before he died. Uh, Brian Henson was the second unit director. Uh, the Jim Henson company made the four turtle suits. They made um, Splinter. And this is one of the main reasons why you should go and watch that documentary that I mentioned. Or if you've got Teenage Recent Ninja Turtles on DVD, watch the behind the scenes. Because the work that went into creating those turtles, <laughs> from designing them and building them, to the people performing inside of them, to the second performer who was doing the voice and the animatronics of the face from off-camera, they are remarkable creations. And they say for one moment where you see the terrifying mouth inside of Donatello's <laughs> mouth, they're, they're great and you buy them. Yeah, I mean, Caroline sent an oral history of the film out for uh, for mm. us to read earlier. And I was surprised in that to learn that it took six people to operate each turtle. Yeah, it's really remarkable. And it's, yeah, it is interesting that it's so collaborative because you think normally, oh, it's one actor sort of shaping a performance. But this was the actor that was in the suit doing the acting, the... I think then they had other stunt people who were doing the sort of the more impressive ninja stunts and you had the people mm-hmm. operating it and you had the voices that were put on after, but it all it all works together so well. And I mean, the technology of how they did these turtles, I wish that film had sort of 
like embrace this and expanded on it. Cause I think that this is so much more interesting than the CGI stuff that we have now, like the way that their lips move and the way that their eyes move. It's so like, it's not realistic. They very much look like puppets, but you just buy it because yeah. they're very, cause they're there and they're interacting with things and the, the, there's so much detail. And yeah, I think it works remarkably well. Again, I think that comes down to just the magic that Jim Henson was able to create through his company that, you know, there's a reason why the Muppets is still popular and why kids still watch Sesame Street. Because, yeah, you don't look at those characters and think they're real, but there aren't many other puppets or many other, you know, kind of those kind of creatures that are still being used in, in 2015. Um, and to go back to 1990 and build those things, and apparently, you know, they took an incredible amount of wear and tear and they were kind of like being touched up and rebuilt each day. And that's another thing, that these suits serve the function they do in the way they look, but also that there are actual people in those suits doing ninja moves and flips, <laughs> and for them to be that versatile, but they also, they got on, um, they got Golden Harvest on board, who were a Hong Kong-based studio that used to do a lot of stuff with um, Bruce, Bruce Lee and Jackie yeah. Chan. <laughs> so they kind of had ninja experts working on the film in terms of all the martial arts stuff. And then, yeah, you've got one guy over on the other side of the set controlling the face, an actor doing the voice. They're an incredible collaborative achievement. Um, and I, I, I just kept like wanting to rewind the film and watch certain moments <laughs> of how they were done. Apparently they were an absolute nightmare for the people inside them. I can but, imagine. Uh, Apparently the shell had a cooling unit in just to try and keep the actors from dying, yeah. presumably. <laughs> so yeah, they look absolutely incredible. Um, then, But then I guess as an extension of the suits, what do you think of the four turtles in this movie? Because the first thing that I would say is I love them as a group, but kind of as individuals. And I kind of reference this in, in relation to the 2014 film. In the 2014 film, Caroline, they've all got these very distinct personalities, mm-hmm. which they had in the cartoon and which kind of they've always had, you know, this is the tech guy, this is the leader, this is the hothead, um, this is the Joker. I didn't necessarily get a sense of that all the way through Ninja Turtles or not, not for all four of them. Is that fair? Yeah, I think so. I think that the one who suffers the most in this film is Donatello, who doesn't really yes. get... They don't really mm-hmm. play up the idea of him being the smart one or the nerdy one or whatever. If anything, I think what I get from him is that he's kind of the follower of the group because he's always with another person. And even that moment where he's he's really worried, so he goes and hangs out with Casey. Like You just get the sense that he he <laughs> needs someone to be leading and then he's a really great team member. But I do He's normally with, with Michelangelo, isn't he? Yeah. He's normally yeah. like, he's laughing like at one of Michelangelo's kick. jokes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I did. I like that scene where um, Leonardo and Raphael are arguing and Michelangelo and Donatello <laughs> are just sort of shrugging and eating fight, pizza. Fight, fight, <laughs> kitchen, kitchen. <laughs> I like that too. And I think that the what they get so right is the brotherly dynamic. Like they very much yeah. joke like brothers and they fight like brothers and you just get the sense of them as a unit. And I, I actually kind of appreciate that they didn't do what the 2014 movie did where it's they each get one characteristic like – Yes, Leonardo's the leader and Michelangelo's the joker, but sometimes, you know, Leonardo makes a joke or Michelangelo does something sort of leaderly like that. And I actually think that's to the film's credit that they let it be a little bit more nuanced. I do think I wish Mm -hmm. they just brought out a little bit more for Donatello to do. And maybe if Raphael hadn't been such a a teenager (laughs) in the first half of the movie, like he comes round and he becomes part of the team and he's not such a... But he's got such a whiny voice. And he is so <laughs> moody and sullen. Um. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I mean, that's just Raphael, though, isn't it? No, Raphael's a badass. <laughs> no, I like the moodiness. <laughs> I think that the, what the film gets right, too, is that is that they're teenage mutant ninja turtles. Like, you really get yes. the sense that they're yeah, very yeah. young and that, yeah, they're not making great choices. And yes, Leonardo's the leader, but he's like a 15-year-old leader and he's not always going to do the right thing. And I kind of like <laughs> that they embrace that because we get we always get these superheroes that are so mature and, you know, always make the right choices. And I think it's interesting to explore somebody these characters who are so young and I think this movie really pitches them as being really young they even kind of grieve for Splinter in a really teenage yeah. way don't they well, like, they're, they're like <laughs> they're very like melodramatic about yeah. it and, yeah and, and again they argue like you imagine teenage brothers would in fact I would say if it comes down to judging this movie on how well do you believe that these characters are A. teenage B. mutant ninjas <laughs> and C. turtles Oh, you, yeah, knocked all of those out yeah. of the park. Nailed it. <laughs> and it's interesting that the way that their their age really impacts their relationship with April, too. Because when they lose Splinter, it's not like they're at a point where they're like, well, now we're going to you know, go off on our own. They're like, oh, no, we need someone to take care of us. We better go yes. to that nice girl that we yeah, met. And yeah. that's such a nice dynamic. And again, I don't think the 2014 one gets that as well. And I think that even down to little things in that one, like, Michelangelo, again, as in this movie, like has a crush on April. But in that one, he's like constantly hitting on her. Whereas in this yeah. one, I think he's doing the more realistic thing where he like interacts with her, is totally nervous and awkward. But then when she leaves, he turns to his brother and he's like, oh my God, that was incredible. And I think that that's so much more of a teenage boy thing than the like aggressively hitting on someone. Okay. Who's your favorite turtle? <laughs> We're doing this, are we? We're doing it. Who is your favorite Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle? Michelangelo, because I I always appreciated how he was the funny one. And mm. I just, you know, even as a kid, I always loved comedy in all its forms. So <laughs> It became unfashionable to like 
Michelangelo though, didn't it? As you got a bit older, it was like, oh, yeah, I think it was because he was seen as sort of the the non-serious comic relief one. He was just there to sort of entertain the kids. But, you know, I'll appreciate a well-told joke wherever it comes from. Caroline, who's your favourite turtle? So in the cartoon, it was definitely Donatello because I related to that, like, nerdy side. But because he's not Mm. that well-developed here, I think I'm going to go Leonardo because I appreciate that he feels like the weight of the world on his shoulders. His shell, as it were. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> so yeah i would be i would be like the the typical like yeah normally i like Raphael. just be, i think probably because i had Raphael toys as well and when i had my ninja turtles costume i felt like the the red one was the coolest mm-hmm. and it's very easy to make his weapons out of tinfoil <laughs> um, <laughs> so normally i like Raphael, but in this movie it's michelangelo he has so many great moments so funny um, the, the turtle wax um, and the and, and yeah the pop culture references and like all the stuff that he does with Donatello like leading Donatello in the dance when Splinter wants them to meditate or going and getting the pizza or the the great the great the immortal line at the end of the movie who wants to deliver it I'll do it I love being a turtle <laughs> it was all that one moment oh, was amazing. a little too much for me I, that was one where I was like oh I probably liked that more as a kid than I do now I still loved it it's funny actually there are quite a lot of lines in this film that I remember like quoting in the playground and stuff like just incessantly and they all came mm-hmm. flooding back to me like the one I remember most is, is bizarre but we always used to walk around going he's alive barely <laughs> Like, I just I have no reason, really no, no reason why we should be using that line of all of them. The but one just... in my family was at the end when Splinter goes, "I made a funny." We used to say that yeah. all the yeah. time. <laughs> that one too. Like it's kind of I. They're such a part of my like pop cultural lexicon that I almost forgot they even came from this film. Should we talk about April? So we kind of talk about her there as like kind of maybe like a surrogate mother to the turtles. Yeah, and also as being kind of like this, as this supporting character, she's definitely not the protagonist. And when it comes to the, like, ninja action, it makes sense that she can't really be too, she can't be too pivotal in that. But I actually really liked Judith Hogue in this role. Like, just generally throughout, I liked her being there. And I thought she was, she was, after Splinter goes, a really great uniting force for the rest of the movie. Like, you kind of need that character in the middle of it for it not to, for it not to get too ridiculous almost. Yeah, I think she's really great. I actually remember, like, really responding well to her in the cartoon, too. And it, I, I don't think I knew, like, oh, I like her more because she's the girl, but I think that probably is what was happening. But I, like, was a big April fan, and I I remember I had her toy. Like, I actually remember that more than... I, I had the Ninja Turtle toys, too, but April was the one that I really remember. And I think that this movie does a really good job of not sort of, like, patronizing her with her desire for, like, independence, which I actually think is a thing that more modern movies now, they have the same thing where they're sort of the one girl, but her characteristic is she's the girl and everyone says, you're a girl, so we're putting you down. And she says, "I'm don't put me down just because I'm a girl. And that's sort of her whole plot. Whereas April, her gender is, it's like, it's kind of irrelevant. Like she just, she wants to be this reporter. The thing she's getting in trouble for is that she's sort of, you know, challenging the system, not that she's a girl challenging the system. And so I think that mm-hmm. I really appreciate that in the way that they just kind of don't make her gender an issue and they don't be like, oh, here she is doing that crazy independence thing. They just kind of present it (laughs) and don't comment on it. And she is just generally, she's good at her job. In fact, what gets her into trouble is how good at her job Mm -hmm. she is. Kind of the opposite of how they treat April in the modern one. (laughs) 
I mean, all that said, though, I thought the romance kind of subplot between her and Casey, even though it comes from the source material, but her just saying at the end, oh, shut up and kiss me. And I was like, really? Yeah, like, what? I what really you, felt like, like if there was any build-up, <laughs> if there was any build-up to that, I really missed it. What about that point when he gave her the massage in the kitchen? <laughs> well, yeah, but like, you, I get the sense that he's a he's a creepy guy who is attracted <laughs> to her, but I don't get the sense that she was in any way intrigued by him. No, I just, just to give a female perspective, I think Casey, <laughs> the appeal of Casey Jones is immediate and understandable. <laughs> he's like a very like he's like a dirty Han Solo. <laughs> and he's and he's Elias Cateus. That's something that I hadn't remembered. That that genuine, like you know, really good actor who's still knocking around today. It was Casey Jones. I had no memory of it being him whatsoever. I mean, well, t- Sam Rockwell is it? Yeah, turns up for a couple of lines. Yeah, one of the main uh, like gang members. That's going to kind of become a recurring feature on Cinematic Universe. The kind yeah. of like the one person who was not famous at the time and is now. So we had Rebel Wilson last week, and now we've got uh, Sam Rockwell. <laughs> I'll be honest, I was kind of a bit more with James. I didn't see what the appeal was with Casey. Or at least, like, when he's been a badass street vigilante, I got it. But, yeah, once they get to the farmhouse, and also, what a tired trope to go to a farmhouse in the middle of the movie <laughs> to regroup before your final battle. Ah. Now we know where Joss Whedon got the yeah, idea from. No kidding. And it was Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Who knew? Someone used to ask Joss Whedon whether that was a deliberate a deliberate Nod. reference. <laughs> it's it's like genuinely shocking to hear hear you guys say this about Casey, because he is such an appealing character to me. Because really? he really is that like he's that bad boy with the heart of gold and oh he's got that rough exterior, but and again, I think this is a moment where the movie does well by not patronizing April or she's the one that has to fix him. It's just kind of like I don't know, he's this hot, rugged guy and she's going to kiss him after this you know, extended time. And I like the way that's played, too, that he kind of comes up and he's like, aren't you worried about me? Aren't you emotional? And she's like, no, just kiss me. Like, I think that that is like a little bit subversive. And that, yeah, she's, you know, this high powered woman and whatever. She kind of gets like the hot guy at the end in the way that I think a million movies give the successful man, you know, they get the hot love interest at the end. So I kind of yeah. like that about it. Yeah, yeah, fair point. OK, I want to ask you about one moment with Casey Jones in particular. Um, and it's the, I would say, the the one moment that I was troubled by in this movie is when, <laughs> and I'm jumping ahead here, but when the Ninja Turtles defeat Shredder at the end and he falls yeah. into, is it like a garbage truck? Yeah. And then Casey's just like, oh, Oops. did I slip on this handle? And crushes him to yeah. death. Not, not actually to death because it's going to be retconned, but crushes him to death. That's yeah. brutal. <laughs> it's really brutal. In this movie that's for kids. Yeah. I was kind of shocked by that, too. I I mean, I remembered it happening, but it just didn't hit me that way when I was a kid. And I think there's something about, like, Shredder's kind of dehumanized in a way, because you just see him, like, in this mask, and they're like, oh, he's a tin can opener. And so somehow, because of that, Mm. it feels more like they're, I don't know, destroying a robot. But, yeah, that's definitely just a human that he's killing in a horrific (laughs) way. Yeah, like, when I was a kid, it didn't strike me as, oh, no, they've killed Shredder. It was just like, yeah, they crushed Shredder in their thing. Great. But yeah, when I was rewatching it this time, I was like, hang on a second, he just murdered that guy. <laughs> like, shouldn't they arrest him or something? And as for the villains, so we've got the Fuck Clan, who are run by Shredder, and Shredder kind of has, like, one chief ninja in charge of the rest of them. Now, Shredder is kind of, like, iconic from the cartoons and, you know, like, it, in that he's Shredder and he has this awesome metal mask 
and these cheese graters on his arms, which apparently that's genuinely where the idea came from. One of Eastman <laughs> and Laird put a cheese grater on their hand and said, oh, wouldn't this be a great weapon? And they went, yep, draw it. Um, so what? his plan is to steal lots of crappy electronics from around New York, hire a bunch of untrained teenage kids, kind of train them up a bit, and is that it? They're just they're just stealing crappy electronics. I suppose and, he's, and they're ninjas. He's building a criminal empire. I suppose is the mm-hmm. idea, isn't it? Whether there's any loftier goal, I'm not really sure from the film. But he's no kingpin. That's what I'm saying, James. <laughs> he he will be one day if he could get his act together and stop stealing old ladies' beat up TVs with stickers on the side. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was a interesting moment. I get the sense that. So he is kind of operating, there's like the the main level of what the people involved think is happening, which is that he's like get, appealing to these teens, essentially by being like, hey, you guys can steal all this stuff and then use it. You know, like, hey, steal that TV and then you can come hang out here. And it's almost this weird, like, I'm luring these boys in with this stuff. But that his actual motives are, are again, I don't know what they are, but I get the sense that they're far more nefarious. And it's like, we'll keep these boys here until they um, are old enough in which then they could start becoming their, you know, their training to be ninjas. And then at some point I will have a full army and then I can, you know, do X, Y, Z, whatever he wants to do, which again is not clear at all. But I think that what I really like about Shredder and his plan, I guess, is that it's a really nice parallel for the turtles, which is that I think this movie is ultimately like about family and, and pretty explicitly so, and that you get the sense of here's, the turtle family and their strength is that there's the four of them and they love their father and the father loves them. And then here you have Shredder, who's this really like twisted take on fatherhood where he's kind of saying like, Hey, you teenage boys, you don't have great relationships with your real father. So I'm going to like lure you in with toys and violence and, and sort of like corrupt the idea of family. And then I'll have my army based on that. So you have like the real authentic family going up against the, the twisted family. And Mm. sure, that's all like very surface level, but I think that, just having that makes this movie feel like a little more deep and a little more substantial and like that I really enjoyed on this rewatch. That that is very interesting actually because in I'm reading the current turtle series by IDW and in the most recent uh, book that I finished there is a scene where Shredder gives a speech to his lieutenants that uh, the Foot Clan is stronger as a family because it's a family you choose to be in. Hmm. So it's interesting that you you got that parallel because it it's clearly something that they have been thinking about in the franchise like even today. And well, and that speech that I read as kind of like the trail for this podcast on the last episode, post credit stings. Stick around for them, guys. Um, <laughs> was the was Shredder saying, "This is your family. I am your father." There's the, it's definitely there. It's definitely talked about. And then there is a kind of a pawn put in the middle of Shredder and Splinter to begin with, and then it becomes Mother Turtles, which is Danny. And Danny is the young gingerhead scamp of a son <laughs> of April's boss. And I think this works really well. Danny's placement in the film works really well in relation to what Caroline just said. And I think he also works well as kind of like an audience surrogate, especially mm-hmm. for like, you know, kids watching, like you'd be like thinking, oh, if I was Danny, I'd totally go inside yeah. with the turtles. Having said that, Danny is the worst, right? <laughs> oh, I kind of like him. I hated Danny. <laughs> hated him so much. Wow. I mean, he's all right. The problem is like the first thing you see him do is stealing from April and you're like, hey, don't steal from April. I kind of like I mean, him. I Like, I get what you're saying. It's not like it's the most nuanced performance and there's something like very <laughs> obvious about these tropes. But I don't know. I what I really appreciate 
and this kind of speaks to the whole movie as well, is there's there's not too much exposition with Danny. They kind of actually trust you to get a lot with these silent shots. And yeah, the actor's yeah. not that great, but like you get the story from that. And I think a like even a movie nowadays, I think there'd be more of the need for him to be like have the big speech where he rebels against his dad or explain that money stealing thing or just like make all of this more explicit. And like in some way, yes, it's pretty obvious, but it's like a little bit subtextual here. And I kind of appreciate hmm. that. I think it makes the story like I think the story would have been unbearable if it was just him saying all of his emotions constantly. And they're like their slight bit of restraint <laughs> really makes yeah. me like it a lot more. I, I think he's instrumental in continuing to like Splinter throughout the film. Yeah. The way that Splinter speaks to him like a dad, like mm-hmm. a dad would. But also, all all his discussion with him is trying to drive him back to his own father and saying, you know, no, this is like a really key relationship in your life. You should you should try and you should try and go back to him. The the one problem I had with Danny going through was, and this is redeemed by. Sam Rockwell at the end, actually, in that you've got all these kids and there are all these kids who are kind of like, you know, like street thugs who have gone, you know, off the straight and narrow and have been attracted to this ninja organization. And, you know, they can get cigarettes whenever they want and they can play and (laughs) um, they get to steal. And what I kind of didn't like when I was watching it was that it was the one kind of kid from the really good background with the with you know the the dad who was a proper professional that kind of like it was the one rich well off kid mm-hmm. who could who could get back in touch with his morals <laughs> which yeah. made it slightly more bearable for me when Sam Rockwell at the end sees error of his ways and tells the cop like yeah no if you go out to that warehouse you can find the whole yeah. operation that that fu- that redeemed it for me because up to that point I was like fuck you Danny yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah you've got options I think Danny's also kind of a cool parallel for Raphael, who I think is, like, probably the turtle that gets the most to do in this movie, Mm. and that they're both kind of, like, angry young dudes who have daddy issues, but here you have, and it's a good example of, like, why Splinter is such a good dad, and, like, why maybe, I mean, Danny's dad seems like he's okay, but, like, clearly not as involved in his child's life, and I don't know, it's interesting (laughs) that Splinter is... You see, you see how Raphael is very similar to Danny, but he's able to like keep control of his life because he has this really good influence of Splinter. Whereas Danny is angry and like doesn't have a good influence, so he kind of runs away. And it takes Splinter's good influence to help Danny. And I don't know. I think to, this touches on. I just think everything with Splinter in this movie works incredibly well. Like the, those, all the emo- all the moments with him were just really emotional to me. And it's a really nice performance, and it's a really great character. And that scene where he, where Splinter is tied up and Danny comes to visit him and you can just tell that Splinter's like, oh, I know how to relate to this boy because my son is like this and so I know how to give him fatherly advice and I just thought <laughs> all that stuff with Splinter being the dad, like, hmm. again, it helps, it makes Danny look better just by, like, being in his vicinity because that Splinter stuff is so great. Splinter was fully animatronic. There was no one inside Splinter like there was inside wow. the Turtles. Yeah, so uh, the Turtles just had animatronic heads, that, you know, were hollow and had a human head inside them, but they were animatronic. Splinter was fully animatronic, um, but was puppeteered by Kevin Clash behind him. And Kevin Clash is the guy who... the There's the documentary about him being Elmo. 
Um, yeah. And he he has puppeteered Elmo for a number of years. He was kind of like the hotshot of the Jim Henson Company at that point, and I think he does incredible work with Splinter because, like you say, so he's he's puppeteering, and he's I'm not sure whether the final voice is his, but he was definitely doing a voice on set and controlling animatronics. And um, Splinter works, and you wouldn't know that he is an animatronic. What really struck me on uh, this watch, which I just accepted Splinter when I was a kid, giant rat. But think yeah. about if you, like, at one point in your life, this small rat, like, jumped on your face and scratched you. And then years from then, you met him and he was a giant dog. <laughs> that would literally be the most horrifying thing that could happen. Like, you you know, I don't know, that freaked me out on this rewatch. And I was, like, very sympathetic to Shredder being concerned about this because that's, in, that's immensely concerning. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's also just reminded me of a really nice moment. Just before April gets mugged, she sees a rat and jumps yeah. and screams. Um, and it's it's some really nice foreshadowing, which is then echoed when she gets down and she wakes up and she sees Splinter for the first time and again jumps up and screams, mm-hmm. but then turns and sees the turtles and screams even louder and kind of falls backwards. And Michelangelo and Donatello look at each other and they scream as well. <laughs> and everyone's scream- screaming. And like I say, it's one of those moments that just... I'm grinning from ear to ear thinking about it. It's, it's wonderful. So much fun. Um, what did you guys think of the flashbacks that um, that were in the film? So there is the one, it kind of refers to what Caroline was just talking about, about when a young splinter who was a rat in a cage, just a normal rat in a cage, was watching his owner fight the man who would go on to become Shredder. And then there's the other one where you meet a rat and four turtles for the first time who kind of grow up in this kind of grainy, weird, puppety <laughs> thing. <laughs> it's freaky. It's really freaky. They, they kind of had to put an... Or- it's like they had to put the origin in there, but they didn't want to spend all their time on it. Mm-hmm. Mm. So it's sort of... Yeah, it has this really weird truncated thing where, like, he... They get in the mutagen or whatever, and they're literally, like, next shot, they're going, pizza, pizza. <laughs> it's like, they're oh, that was cute, quick. though. I think they're, oh, they're really cute, cute, those little ones. <laughs> they're kind of terrifying, like I say. Yeah. But they're cute. I want one. In the cartoon, Splinter is a human who is mutated from contact with a rat. Whereas what? in this That's film, insane. he's a rat who has mutated into a giant rat. You can also talk. What did you think of the action scenes in the movie? When we get our ninja fighting in general throughout the film, and then also in that final showdown on the rooftop with Shredder and the Four Turtles. The action stuff, I think, worked far better than I was worried it would. I was like, this must have been a really clunky movie, and I'm just remembering it looking a lot cooler. But they actually get a lot of movement out of those turtle suits, and they do some really impressive things in them, and it doesn't... Like, again, you can definitely tell it's like a dude in a suit doing these things, but it does not look as limiting as that should have made it look, I think. (laughs) Yeah, you can't make them do the crazy moves that they can do in last year's movie, but... The stuff that they are able to achieve in those cumbersome outfits is incredible. And another thing that I really liked was, and this was this is particularly noticeable in the middle sequence where they fight the ninjas in April's flat and then it falls down into the antique shop. Mm-hmm. The, the turtles all kind of have like signature kind of turtleish kind of moves on top of the ninja stuff. So there's one point where like two of the two of the turtles bash someone's head in between their uh, half shells. Um, yeah, I love that. <laughs> and there's a moment where I think it's Leonardo, or it might be Donatello, is getting his head dunked in a fish tank. 
Except, obviously, because he's a turtle, his head being dunked in water doesn't affect him. Yeah. So he comes out and squirts the ninja in the face with the water <laughs> he's sucked in from the fish tank. Um, and there's another one where they put, I think they put Michelangelo down on the floor on his back. Yeah, and, and then they spin him, spin him yeah. and he takes them out as he's spinning and he calls it the Wheel of Fortune. <laughs> <laughs> I really I really liked that, how it was kind of like they had actually thought, what cool things can we do that we couldn't do if they weren't turtles? And again, it's that great thing that the best action sequences do. Um, and it's something that, to go back to Age of Ultron again, that Joss Whedon is really good at, which is showing character through action. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, the one sequence, so we were talking earlier, like they're definitely teenagers, they're definitely mutants, they're definitely turtles. And for a while I'm like, okay, they're good at, like fighting but is that like the full ninja quality like ninjas i think it's like that sort of secretive aspect and the scene that really yes. sells me on that is when they're hiding in april's apartment which isn't really an action scene but is like this great no. suspense scene and she turns no, exactly around you know right. she's like can you guys hide and immediately they're gone and they find really clever ways where obviously if we saw those suits running it would look really clunky but you know in that kind of corny style of you you know, you you whip around to the side of the room and the room's empty. Like, they, they do some nice little cinematic shortcuts to sell you on kind of how ninja-y they are. And what do you think of the final battle? Yeah, this was my biggest question leaving the film, because I, I agree with you that it's set up really nicely where they each try to, try to you know, take Shredder down individually. That doesn't work. Then we get the moment where, where Shredder's like, I'm going to kill this turtle... And they all drop their weapons and he's like, you fools, you know, you, you should have just, you know, done, you should have sacrificed one to save the many and their kind of attitude is like, no, we should all be here together. But I, and then what ultimately happens is it's just Splinter that saves the day. Like the turtles themselves kind don't of. really do much in that, in the climax, like it's mostly him. And that I was of two minds on the one hand. I was like, well, this is disappointing because this whole movie has been about them maturing, like, without Splinter and them being, you know, finishing their training and going on and doing things. But on the other hand, I was like, well, this is kind of a nice statement that the movie doesn't end with them being 100% independent superheroes, that the movie kind of ends with, like, it's okay to still need your parents sometimes when you're 15 years old. And I was like, maybe that's actually kind of subversive. But then, I don't know, I was so I was debating that in my head. Yeah, if I, if I had any major complaint about the film, it is that the... You know, it's quite a common one in current Marvel films, to be honest, but the villain isn't quite well set up enough to make the sort of final act work properly. Like, I I kind of know what they want to happen, and the way they get to it seems sort of a bit rote. Like, it's just, it's given that they will defeat the villain and win. Mm -hmm. It does feel a little bit Marvel-y, doesn't it? Yeah. Like, in, in, in broader strokes, in that the heroes are just so irresistible you can't help but feel invested yeah (laughs) even though if what they're fighting against isn't that you know you're not that engaged in the in the villainous stuff and also that when it comes down to it when you walk away you're remembering the moments you're remembering just little details and and little throwaway lines or little looks from the turtles like when i remember this movie I remember Donatello and Michelangelo watching the tortoise and the hare on TV. Yeah. He's like, oh, ninja chop the bunny! Or whatever it is he says. <laughs> or that part where they do the funeral for the pizza that's old. That like, made me laugh as a kid and made me laugh equally as hard this time around. Um, and just, just like the idea that when Raphael is recovering, he's recovering in the bath. Yeah. Because he's a turtle. And they've put him in the bath. This is the movie that first introduced me to the concept of cricket being a sport. Because they reference, <laughs> <laughs> never heard of it before. And, 
And have you since gone on to, you know, understand the delicacies and the beauties of cricket as a no, game? still a total mystery to me. Pretty much this movie <laughs> remains my only reference point for cricket. <laughs> I just wanted to share that my favorite line... So when Raphael goes out to the movie, my immediate thought was like, this is so dumb. He's a turtle in a trench coat. This is yeah, not... Yeah, he's dressed as Columbo. Yeah, this, but this is also, like, not... He's not well-disguised. Like, he's very no. clearly a giant <laughs> turtle. And so mm. the line that made me laugh this time that probably went over my head as a kid is when he rolls over the, the taxi cab and the guy in the back's like, what is that? And the guy's like, eh, it looks like a giant turtle in a trench coat. So he's going to LaGuardia. And just this, like, great little reference to, like, yes, they're pretty obviously turtles, but it's New York, so nobody cares about that. Yeah. I had to rewind it and watch it again because it made me laugh so much. I really appreciated that. Uh, wait, so one of my favorite moments of the film where Casey Jones spots Raphael on mm -hmm. the rooftop and Raphael is doing his footloose angry dance. He's doing ang angry ninja dancing on the roof. It's amazing. <laughs> See, that's why, we because, love, that's why I love Casey Jones, because he sees Raphael getting beaten up, and he's like, I'm going to yeah. go help my friend. Like, what a sweet little moment. Um, okay, well, I think I'll take us out on then one question, which, Caroline, you asked on our show notes. We're talking about all these moments and liking them, but watching this film now, 25 years on, all grown up, some of us more than others, James, um, <laughs> do, do, you actually, do you actually laugh when you're watching the movie? Does it, when they're doing, when Michelangelo is quipping and doing his gags, is it funny or is it something that's more for kids? Yeah, that's what tough, I laughed at more this time was not the one-liners. I I did that thing where I was like, oh, I appreciate what they're doing there. But what I laughed mm. at was there's this great attention to detail, like the moment where Case they're at the farmhouse and Casey's chopping carrots, but he's doing it with like Leonardo's yeah. giant sword. <laughs> like there's a sense yeah. that they're not just getting the one-liners in, we're done. Like there's such a nice little attention to detail, and it's all those little moments. Like those are the ones that I think in the end, like they're the ones that I laugh at are the ones that uh kind of stand out to me. Like that part where they do the the funeral or what you're talking about earlier where where yeah. Leonardo and um Raphael are fighting and they, you know, fight, fight, kitchen, kitchen. And like those little those little moments that aren't the one liners, that's what made me laugh this time around. Yeah, yeah. The same basically. It's just like the the just the amount of care that goes into it is what what I appreciated it this time around. Like I was not expecting it to be as good as it was. Even like knowing that I liked it as a child, mm. I just I didn't expect it to have that amount of effort and attention put into it. I was expecting to go back to this as a total kind of nostalgia trip and enjoy it, but acknowledge why it's a bit naff. And I think there are there are parts of it that are a bit naff, and there is it is very kind of like it's hardly a subtle movie. But I, while I probably wouldn't hold this up as one of the great superhero movies, I think it's a legitimately great family film. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't think that I'm saying that out of nostalgia. I think it is like a genuinely great family movie that you could sit down kids today in front of and they would have the time of their lives. I mean, it's funny because it came out the same year as Batman, didn't it? And I just remember when we rewatched Batman, I was just surprised by how much it didn't hold up. And I was sort of expecting that of, of this. And I don't know, maybe it was because my expectations were so low in the first place mm. that it, it surprised me. But, you know, I'd rather watch this than the Tim Burton Batman again. Well, I think, I think that probably brings us to the end of our Ninja Turtles discussion. But of course, that means that now there is. This is uh, the time of the show that James, you are going to recommend me a comic book based on this movie. Uh, I'm going to give you two recommendations. Two Ninja Turtles recommendations. Yes, amazing. The first recommendation I'm going to give you is a fairly obvious one. It is the original Turtles comics, which 
you can buy on Comixology. So I'm I'm going to point to you at the original versions, the black and white kitchen created Eastman and Laird Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Okay. Let's say maybe the first four issues. Sure. We? Uh, so if you look on Comixology, they're collected under Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Black and White Classics, issues one, two, three, and four. Uh, you'll see a lot of the concepts that made it into the movie introduced in these these comics and you'll probably get a quite strong frank miller vibe from them right uh yeah i'm very intrigued by this you'll probably be surprised by how lo-fi they are as well but uh yeah you'll you'll get to all that and as a counterpoint the current uh since that version of the tales there have been a lot of different uh reboots and uh, interpretations some based on cartoons based on movies whatever the most recent version is just a standalone continuity which doesn't tie into anything uh it was released by idw in sort of the last three or four years it's been uh the first volume is teenage mutant ninja turtles volume one changes constant and that is by it's written in part by kevin eastman yeah one of the original one of the original creators yeah uh i've been reading this series and i'm about six volumes in now and i really surprisingly enjoy it like you probably haven't read any of the idw transformers comics but it's very much in the same vein as those in that they take this kind of children's property and rework it like for an adult audience but not not to the extent of making it impenetrable for children mm-hmm. like it's just a really well done version of uh the characters and and story okay uh, that's very exciting. That should make for a very interesting <laughs> podcast next week. Okay, well, let's move on now to our third and final section, which is the pitch. And this week, Caroline, you're going to be representing Seb. Woo! We're going to do it. I have a good feeling. Um, <laughs> so this week, um, we're staying on the Teenage Mutant Ninja theme, uh, Ninja Turtle theme. And so I was thinking, if Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles is a parody of other superhero properties from back in the 80s, what if we did a similar one today so i was thinking if you guys could pitch me a modern superhero parody in the vein of teenage mutant ninja turtles so i want to know who you're parody who you're parodying and how you're going to do it so i'm very interested in these characters like black widow or hawkeye or batman or iron man and i guess to somewhat of an extent daredevil who are like they don't really have powers and they're not you know supposed to be like super strength or anything they just either are really competent or have a lot of money so what mm. i'm pitching is a superhero who who in that vein doesn't have any powers um and is really strong and is really rich but only within like the reality of how strong or how rich someone in our real world could be and so his movie is going to be sort of intercut with movies that already exist, where he is kind of like, he has been in the background of all of these things, but his contributions have been so small that like it wasn't worth putting into the film. So he is at the Battle of New York and the end of Avengers, but like while they're doing all these things, he's literally been fighting like one Chaturi soldier this entire time because that's all he can take on. Or he's in the Dark Knight and he has like a cool car and he wants to get there and help out Batman, but like he gets lost in traffic or his GPS breaks down and he's just really struggling with that. Or he's in that scene in Daredevil where where Matt Murdock is like doing his crazy parkour flips across the roof, but. Like, he's just struggling to run. Like, he can't even fit in any extra flips there that he's just, like, really going for it. And then he's really winded at the end. Um, And my name for him is Everyman. And he's just, like, a totally normal (laughs) dude superhero that follows around these big people and and can't quite (laughs) save the day. That's amazing. For a minute there, I thought you were pitching me Agent Coulson, the movie. (laughs) Yeah, a little bit of that, actually. (laughs) 
Yeah, he could definitely pop up on shield. They get a little they get a little crazy there too with their like weaponry and their invisible jets. It was when you were saying like, oh, they do this thing that's instrumental but it's not important enough to turn up in the movie. I was like, yeah, Agents of Shield did two episodes about yeah. that. Like get a health carrier. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I really like that. So Carolina's come up with every man. Okay, so mine is a parody of the comic X Factor, which is about a government-sponsored team of mutants. Uh, essentially, they're like if the X-Men were working for the government instead of themselves. So my feeling is, if this was actually the case, they would probably spend a lot of time filling out forms and <laughs> dealing with minor administrative issues and possibly not actually doing much superheroing because of health and safety concerns, but spending a lot of time making sort of promotional videos and sort of safety announcements and maybe the odd personal appearance. (laughs) Uh, So my film is people who wanted to be heroes were stuck being sort of office workers instead. Call it Office Space meets Deadpool. Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. It's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. again. (laughs) I was going to say, I'm glad both of us just pitched Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. (laughs) (laughs) It's like last week when you and Sarah, I was able to like merge it together to be face off in space. This week, I feel like your two ideas... Yeah, what James has got the Shield drones. Yeah. Carolina's got Coulson. We have done Agents of Shield, but there is no fucking way on earth that I'm I'm gonna go on board with Agents of Shield. <laughs> like, uh, I've seen how so it works out, ways. and it's struggling to order third season. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm gonna have to go with Caroline's. Caroline's every man. Um, I very much like. Um, I, he kind of almost feels like Ant-Man to me as well. That's been my yeah. idea for Ant-Man for so long that Ant-Man should be taking place like three years in the past to the Marvel Universe. And it turns out that he's been there at the Battle of New York and in Sokovia. But he's just been really little and no one yeah. knew that he was there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so Caroline, you're the winner this week with every man. Oh um, I'm so honoured. I would like I to like dedicate this award to little Lois. Uh, since <laughs> she's the reason that I'm on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Caroline, I just want to say again, thanks so much for coming on this week. It's uh, it's been great having you and um, some great Ninja Turtles points. <laughs> um, I want I wonder if you want to let the listeners know where they can find more of your work online. Yeah, absolutely. You can find my stuff at the AV Club or Boing Boing, or easiest of all, you can just reach me on Twitter. I'm at Caroline Cita, which is C A R O L I N E. The last name is S-I-E-D-E. Impossible to spell and to say. But yes, you can find me tweeting um, maybe about Ninja Turtles in the future. Who knows? <laughs> Excellent. Um, and I would recommend, um, Caroline, you wrote a really great piece on the masculinity in Daredevil. I did, yes. And it was. I, I can be a little critical of shows, but this was praising Daredevil essentially for having a mostly male cast. So not usually the kind of stuff I'm writing, but yeah, I uh, kind of wrote about why I thought that was awesome. Great. Um, If you're enjoying the show, then please do subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, or your podcast app of choice. And if you've already subscribed, then please leave us a rating or review. Um, That is something that Gritster did this month on iTunes. So thanks very much to um, him slash her, Gritster. Um, And also... um, I am. Uh, I was assured on Twitter by um, Ashley Argo that um, that there was uh, a review being left for us on iTunes, which I think probably just hasn't processed yet because it hasn't come up yet. But I, um, I'm totally believing you that that happened because iTunes can be terrible. So thanks to Gritster and Ashley Argo for being uh, fantastic listeners and leaving us a rating and review on iTunes. And if you do, we'll give you a shout out on the podcast as well. Um, you can find us on Facebook, on Twitter at cu underscore podcast. 
send us an email to cinematicuniversepod at gmail.com. Um, you can find previous episodes of the podcast at cinematicuniverse.libsyn.com uh, and because this is a Film Divider podcast on filmdivider.com. Thanks for listening. And see you next week. Goodbye. Bye. I've been doing a lot of reading, you know, like online about like just evolution and natural selection and how like there's this thing, right? It's called the apex predator, right? And basically what this is, is the strongest animal in the ecosystem, right? And as human beings, we're considered the apex predator, but only because smaller animals can't feed on us because of weapons and stuff, right? A lion does not feel guilty when it kills a gazelle, right? You do not feel guilty when you squash a fly, And I think that means something. I just think that really means something. Cinematic Universe will return in two weeks' time with Chronicle.